Hello, Jeff Johnston here with the Living Undeterred podcast. Um, I'm super stoked. I've not done a podcast for like six to seven weeks. And uh, we'll talk a lot about why. And I'm not sure when this will post, but um, it should post about the time we're wrapping up the tour. But I want to introduce Charlie Ray. I met Charlie on social media. Like it seems like we meet everybody. Had the honor to actually physically meet him at our Wisconsin stop in Waukesha, Wisconsin, couple months back, uh, Carroll University there, and really fell in love with your story, Charlie. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show. I can't wait for you and I to navigate down a lot of different roads. But again, welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. And um, I'm excited to talk to you, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I love doing these. I love just getting messages out there, different, unique, uh, different ways of looking at life and how your mindset works. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about you participating in our stop in Waukesha was your, like you're a mindset coach or you're a mindset uh, philosopher in that. And I, I, I am too. I, I, a lot of reframing and stoicism and, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the better, the better versus bitter road, you know, my whole spiel, but, yep. um, but you, you're very similar, but you've all, you've almost gone a little bit deeper because you actually have a personal relationship with your your clients and the people you work with through what you do in your coaching program. So I guess first, let's talk a little bit about you and about what got you into mental health. And I know your story is, people have heard my story and they say, wow, Jeff, your story is amazing, but yours is too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it all started back in 2010. Uh, my 14-year-old son was in eighth grade got accepted to the same high school that I went to. I was really excited about that. Well, he had trouble sleeping at night and we brought him to a pediatrician and the pediatrician, you know, couldn't find anything wrong with him, tested him for everything. And she thought that he was mildly depressed and put him on Zoloft. Well, as we looked back after the situation, when he was a, a toddler, he was di- not diagnosed. He was just, he had trouble sleeping and he was put on a prescription sleep medicine. And so, you know, he, t- he was taking Zoloft and we started noticing that he was wearing a lot of long sleeve shirts throughout the, oh. the school year. And so we actually, I actually had to physically force up his sleeve because he would, he was fighting us and he had cut marks on both arms. How old was he at this point? He was, four, he was 14. Okay. 14. Yeah, yeah. 14 years old, eighth grade, six foot one, two twenty. I coached him in football. For a number of years, just a really good athlete, really good student. Um, Did you expect anything? No, no. Um, you, what do you mean expect? Like what was going on with him? Well, were there signs of things of depression or addiction or anything like that? No, because when he actually got put on the medicine, he goes, I don't feel depressed. He literally said, I don't feel depressed. Hmm. So he is telling us. So I think he honestly, a hundred percent, he was misdiagnosed. Hmm. And so as he was taking Zoloft, Zoloft can make you depressed. Zoloft can make you have suicidal ideations. I really have not met a lot of people. I'm just saying who I've met a lot of people that were put on Zoloft that have been happy with that medication. Hmm. And so, um, in fact, there were two class action lawsuits for Zoloft. One was for uh, women that were taking Zoloft were having birth defects with their children. Another one was for the increased 
suicide that was happening um, on Zoloff, and the judge dismissed both class actions. Hmm. Wow. So yeah, so I, you know, I'm not a fan of the pharmaceutical industry in general and how strong they are, uh, and I'm just not a fan with, you know, just kind of shaking up mental health in general, like just shaking yeah. it up because like everything does not need a medicine. So anyways, going back to the story, he had cut marks. We brought him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist talked to him. It was literally one session, talked to both of us. And he also made that diagnosis that he was depressed. And then he increased the medication. Hmm. So we're about two weeks in. We're out getting some food, dinner. He was home with his two sisters. All of a sudden, we get a frantic call from Michaela. Michaela's like, I think. Christopher's playing a joke. He's not moving. He's not responding to me. And I just knew it. My heart just sunk. I knew something was wrong. We raced home, went through every stop sign, every stoplight, pull into the driveway, run down to the basement. And he had hung himself in the basement. Mm. So we kind of had to go into action. We had to cut him down, start CPR. He was actually taken to one hospital and then he was um, taken via helicopter to the local children's hospital. And he was on life wow. support for about three days. There was nothing that we could do to save his life. And you said your daughter found him? Yeah, my nine-year-old daughter is the one that found oh. him. Yeah. Wow. And still to this day, like she she feels she could have done more. You know, I just as a parent, it just right. crushes you. Not only right. that you lost your child and it's like this pain in your life, but like to see your child that's living have all this like she could have done more. It's like, you could have done nothing more. You were just right. It's it's like it, it's like it transfers to her, you know, yeah. the suffering that your son had yeah. like transferred to her. The moment she saw him there, I, I can't even fathom that Charlie. Um, I just can't, I can't picture one of my two boys seeing their older brother yeah. or their mom, you know, hanging. I just, yeah. to my heart, my heart goes out to you. And I think what you're doing is, why you're on this show and why you and I become friends because you've leaned into this yeah. as an opportunity to become a better man, a better dad, a, a, wow. you know, a, a better, better advocate, a better neighbor, you know, a better friend, um, through adversity. And that's how maybe you and I are wired that way. But I know for me, Charlie, it took me 14 months to get to where I'm at. Um, did you go through a period of time where you Here's all I like to say, and maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you can't, but I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to take my life. Yeah, exactly. That's that's spot on. I remember started I started drinking in the middle of the day. Um, just I was like, what can I do to stop this pain? And you're right. I don't know if it was 14 months or whatever it was, but I did notice. I'm like, oh my god, like I'm still a dad. I've got two daughters right. that are suffering, like complete change. And I just, I went to work. I went to work um, a, about three years every week of grief counseling. And that grief never goes away. Like, I know no. people say with time it heals, but not this. It's, I take, I choose to take my pain and I empower myself with it. It's, it makes yeah. me so driven. I have never been so driven and so purpose-driven yeah. in something before in my life after a loss of a child. And I, you know, there's, a, I guess you can go two routes. You can bury yourself with it, or you can just 
empower the crap out of yourself and just go to town and figure out what can I do to disrupt this? Well, I like to tell people when I speak is that I don't want to get over it because this, this not getting over it is what gives me inspiration. If I got over it, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be inspired like I am, you know? And so in some, in some odd dynamic there, and and I don't know if I'm articulating it very well, but I don't, I don't want to move on. I don't want to get over it. I've learned, and this was the third pillar of the living undeterred mindset was evolution. Mm -hmm. And it's a chapter in my book called evolution of self. And you and I talked about this is how, is how that mindset of time heals all wounds. You know, um, this too shall pass, you know, yeah. and this, this, I think it's this illusion, this, this false narrative out there that's presented by grief experts and psychologists. And it's like, you know, I, I want to evolve my life using their stories yeah. to, to relate to other people, to help them get through their own challenges. And, and you're, you're spot on. And I've listened to you speak. I've watched your stuff on, on your website. And your presentations about programming, the one you just did recently, which I want to, in a minute, come back to that. But, you know, you're so spot on on this stuff on, on, on how, you know, a lot of people just, these things happen. It's called life. And it becomes the end for a lot of people. And, and you know, I'm not to throw my wife under the bus, but I, I watched when Seth died that it was her death nail. She just never found a way. And, and, you know, she probably had, like we all had underlying, you know, trauma during childhood or things that we never resolved, but nonetheless, death was kind of presented to us. And, um, you know, I'm here, you're here. Many people aren't when they've had these things happen. So as we pivot and we talk about what's the life lesson from this, you know, what can we take away from this? You know, you really are big into programming and coaching. So let's talk a little bit about what you see are some of the tools that people can be using and and what do you tell someone that feels so helpless today? Maybe they have just lost a child because yeah. it seems like there's a lot of us out there, um, far too many. What, what do you tell them? Well, looking at the two different areas, like the coaching side of it, as far as the programming, and then also somebody that's lost a child. So the, the thing I look at is like, if somebody's suffering and there's some trauma in their life, I always, I always, say, let's find the root of it. So I always say, you know, identify the emotion that you're feeling, the emotion that's not serving you. So let's say I'm feeling sad all the time. Okay, let's dig deeper. Why are you sad? When's the first moment you started feeling this sadness? And where did it all start? What age were you? What happened in your life, right? So we're trying to go back to it. And there's some certain techniques that I use to get rid of it, or to greatly reduce it to empower you. But looking at that moment, and just saying, okay, what did I learn that was positive, right? So we're, we're flipping the narrative. We're flipping that switch and saying, okay, yes, this happened to me. It's in my past. I can't keep allowing this to go to my future or this is going to follow me the rest of my life. What did I learn that has empowered me because of it? Well, I, I mm. gained strength from it. I'm independent because of it. Great. Utilize that feeling of that independence that you gained from it in place of that sadness, you know? And then Mm, if you have unresolved issues from parents or relationships in the past, write a letter to the person. You don't have to send it or burn it. Like find a way to cut Mm. that cord 
and that attachment emotionally to that person. I met with a, a young gentleman literally um, back when I was driving Uber and Lyft and just practicing this stuff. And this was just, just my knowledge. And he's like, you know, he had a really just didn't feel like he was ever enough for his dad. No matter what he did, he yeah. never felt he was enough. I said, well, did you tell him that? I said, I don't remember exactly what I told him to do, but I got him as a passenger like six months later. And he goes, aren't you the motivational speaker guy? I said, yeah, like remind me of your situation. Well, and he told me, he goes, I have the best relationship with my dad now. Like we go out to movies together. It's just like five minutes to completely change somebody's mindset around. Right. Right. And I've done this over 3000 times, depression, anxiety, PTSD, fears, phobias, OCD. You get into that mindset, like flip it around. And there's certain techniques that I use as well, but it's just, I think it's my passion that comes off because I'm so passionate Mm -hmm. about what I do. Now, as far as somebody losing a child, you just have to grieve. Like it's, you have to go through your process and it's kind of like, what can I do now? Like it's, there's no right or wrong answer and it sucks going through it, but I'd say, Hey, what are you going to do to empower yourself now? What can you do to help others like we're doing so they don't have to go through what we went through? How can we change the narrative, change the psychiatric community, whatever it is, just the mental health field. How can we change it so different that people like there's there's actually you can see a legitimate change in society because of what we decide to do. And that's kind of where I'm at. No, you're 100 percent right. I, I think about I think about so many things that I've been through and how I try to present them in a manner that's constructive, not deconstructive. Um, I had a conversation with a lady. I was just talking about this at one of our event stops on our tour and she had reached out to me on Facebook and nice lady. She saw me speak. She thought I was an expert, which I'm not. I'm just a dad from Iowa that I'm pretty passionate about these things. I have life experience, but I'm not a clinician. And she said, you know, Jeff, my daughter died and I have survivor's guilt. You know, I've been been diagnosed with survivor's guilt and I I wish it would have been me that died instead of her. And she went on and she sent me, this is a Facebook thing. And she said, what do you think I should do? You know, I, I respect what you do and et cetera. Almost like thinking I was an expert. And I thought for a minute, well, I could give some political banter and do this and do that. And I thought, well. How about I just try an old stoic trick? I'll just reframe it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I said, how about do this instead of, and then this will be free, low cost, no therapist, no meds. Um, Take the word guilt out and replace it with opportunities. So instead of telling yourself you have survivor's guilt, because somebody told you that you may not have it. You may just be human. Mm -hmm. You may just be grieving, but then somebody, somebody anointed you with something called survivor's guilt, which in all sense of purposes doesn't exist. That's just two words put together. And, and uh, I said, now you have survivor opportunities, Mm -hmm. not guilt. And I'll diagnose you with that. Okay. And then a couple weeks later, I got an email from her saying, it's absolutely amazing how my life is changed by what you said about taking that word guilt out. And that's the problem with diagnosis today and putting disorder behind Mm -hmm. words like attention deficit should be criminal. 
how in the hell is something like attention deficit a disorder? You know, and so I think you and I, as you know, we've obviously got skin in the game, you know, with losing people and as advocates, but neither one of us, so I'm not a clinician. I don't, I don't know if you are, but I'm not. You, you know um, what? You know, that word clinician to me, honestly, does not hold a lot of weight. And I, I feel you are an expert in your area because you are just able to heal a person saying that you're not an expert, but look at how her life changed. Right. So you are an expert right. in what you're doing. I am an expert what I'm doing. I've, I've done this over the last four years. I don't have any, I'm getting an actual doctorate's degree. I'm working on that, but just because I want people to see that I have credentials, because for some right. reason, because there's a credential and certification after your name, everyone thinks you're an expert. Well, the funny thing is, I literally can show you over 3,000 people that I've fixed and gotten to a better spot in their life. And I'll challenge any therapist to say, where's your statistics? And I'm not going after yeah. them. I'm just saying like, you come off as an expert, but we all are experts because I'll resonate with a certain type of people. You're gonna resonate with a certain type of people, you know, and, and I don't, I don't follow like a script. I get to work. I figure out what's the problem. Let's fix it. Move on. I've gotten rid of PTSD and a girl that was beaten so bad. She broke her back. She was having six to seven episodes per week on average, 20 minutes up to an hour long curled up in the fetal position, reliving the experience. She had no chance to work on herself. I met with her one time. We did the procedure for about 10 minutes. She gave me a video testimonial, and she's on my website too, a video testimonial about four months later. She was having one, maybe two per week, no more than three to five minutes long. Her life transformed in 10 minutes, and now she had the opportunity to do the work herself to push her over the edge to even get to the point where she's just doing amazing now. Yeah, what's great about that is, people hear a story like that and somebody that would just say, Oh, that's, you know, that's an anomaly, Mm -hmm. Charlie, you know, you, you just, you got somebody that you just got lucky with, but the reality is for that person, it's, it's not an anomaly. It's everything for them. It's, it's the most important conversation they had was with you. So I think of all this as it's not whether or not you're right, or, you know, something other people Mm -hmm. don't, you're arming, you're arming people with more arrows in the quiver. You know, you're giving them tools. M- maybe the next person you talk with, Charlie, you try it. It doesn't work mm-hmm. with them, but, but you have another tool. You can go to plan B, plan yep. C, plan D. And I think as advocates, that's really where we need to spend our time in is in researching, developing, and being open-minded to literally everything. Wow. And so I've, I've staked my reputation with, say, psychedelics. Yeah. You know, I've never done drugs. I lost a son to yeah. drugs. My wife was taking meds. I mean, so you think I would be anti-drugs. And the reality is psychedelics have been around. The indigenous have been using them for thousands yeah. of years. And, and you know, we're so new, especially the United States, in mental health research. I mean, it's probably a less than 100-year industry. And probably really all the gains have been the last, 20. And here is something that's plant-based. It's not made in a lab that, you know, grows naturally that has been used for in research with Alzheimer's and sleep disorders and attention deficit, all these things. And, um, a lot of people pushing back on that. Yeah. 
you know, even harm reduction. A lot of people are pushing back on why would you give people safe needles when they're just going to abuse it and die anyway. And it's like, to me, this is where I think you and I and all the other people, what we do need to start moving these narratives is address these discriminations. That's what I call them. These stigmas head on, Mm -hmm. you know, that's and, programming. And, you know what? Maybe psychedelics doesn't work. Maybe, yeah, maybe psychedelics doesn't work, but at least it's an arrow in yeah. your quiver. It's, it's programming. Struggling. We're programmed to believe that this is not going to work or, you know, that's hocus pocus. I'm actually leaving the state of Wisconsin because it's very, I guess, very slow for change. I'm moving to Tampa, Florida because I think it's a lot okay. more open down there. So I got to start in a state it is. where people are open to mindset. And the funny thing is, Eastern medicine has been a long, around far longer than any of these psychotropic yeah. medications or pills or anything. And right. they, they heal. I mean, there's research being done from um, chants, like, like monks that chant the vibration, our vibrations, all this stuff in energy work. The study of quantum physics and epigenetics, it's just all coming into play. And I think there's bigger corporations that don't want, you know, things like this to come out. It's just my personal opinion because it's, it's dollars and cents to them. You know, look at, look at the, the war on drugs. I remember somebody talking to you about the war on drugs back in like, I think the Reagan or Carter era mm-hmm. and they were mm-hmm. going after marijuana marijuana really wasn't doing oh, anything. Yeah. And it's like, but then right. they, what didn't the government bring opioids in? Like they're the ones that brought opioids to like this situation. It was caused by the government. Not that I'm saying I'm anti-government. I'm just saying right. that's the fact that they brought it in. And I think people are starting to have an awakening as far as, wanting other methods other than medications or drugs or things like that to be able to fix themselves. And I'm not saying anything well, against whether you're on medication to get right. off it. I'm not saying it's a right. negative. I just think people are opening up and saying, we want something more. Uh, you look at every single statistic in the mental health space. Mm-hmm. So depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, suicidal ideation, all that stuff. You'd have to look really deep to find one that got better. Yeah. In other words, the numbers went yeah. down. And so what I say, and uh, I think this is something that anybody in our ad- advocacy could say is if what we were doing was working, you and I wouldn't be doing no. this. And the reality, the reality is what we currently are doing, the, the evidence doesn't justify to keep doing more of yeah. it because more people are dying. Yeah. And, and if you look in, in my book, I wrote this statistic that I, I think is probably the most jarring statistic that I, I use when I talk about these issues, specifically what you're talking about with, with medicine, with meds. In 1990, there were 600,000 kids, adolescents on prescription stimulants. Mm-hmm. Okay, 1990, yeah. 20 years later, 20 years later now, 2011, there was 3.7 million. So you tell me how you tell me in 20 years, American kids yeah. are that much different. No, it's getting, and, and how yeah. you go for it. The diagnosis is different. Not, not the kids, the a kid, a kid in the eighties, early eighties, and you go to the late nineties, 
they're pretty much the same kid. You know, maybe the cell phones and things like that come into play, but but the kid organically DNA, all that stuff, the the, the human nature of a kid. Now you go a hundred years, fifteen year old boys are are probably different. Yeah, they're not that much different. They're not that much different from nineteen seventy nine no. to nineteen ninety nine. No. So why in the hell does the prescription rates just on on a, on um, prescription on stimulants? go from 600,000 to 3.7 million. And then we blame it on the kids or we blame it on the, on the, on pharma. It, it's, it's, it's being prescribed yeah. by doctors. Yeah. Now, sure. The drugs are being made by the pharmaceutical companies, but the doctors are prescribing. So that's a, that's a whole society let down for kids. <laughs> and, you know, you know, it is, it, yeah. and it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. There were so many kids and now they're giving this stuff to kids that are three, five, six, and seven. Yeah. It's like, it's really? Jeff, I got to be honest with you. I am I am not a fan of of big pharma, of pharmaceutical drugs, especially in the mental I'm not health, either. especially in the mental health field. Um, right. We keep having all these psychologists and therapists, and like honestly, and I'm, I'm nothing against them. They are being trained by the big pharmaceutical industries. Are the ones that write their books. Yeah. They actually right. write the books. So of course that's a cycle that's going to keep happening. I was talking to the guy that gets me um, health insurance. Well, they used to give kickbacks to doctors for prescribing a certain medication. Now they can't yeah. do that. It's illegal. But guess what? The insurance right. company gets a kickback every time the doctor prescribes a medication. The insurance companies get a kickback from Big Pharma. And that's happening. And the overlying just disappointment in it humanity it is. is is the fact that we can't look at anybody today and not have this sense of urgency that the only way we can solve this issue they have first of all it's not an issue no, you're no. freaking human yeah. you're human yeah. you know and um is that the only way we can solve this issue is to give you a pill yeah. and the pill the pill keeps you from being you yeah that's yeah. that's the sad yeah. part yeah. you know Agreed. you're you can't you can't so i'm i have attention deficit so do you yeah. if i took a pill it would stop me from being me exactly why can't i just learn <laughs> why can't power. i just learn to power. be yeah it's like why why can't i learn to be me you know why do we have to dumb people down or or, or quiet them down all the time and then you create this society of zombies yeah. and it's like you know i don't know i just um you know i could talk about this for a long long time maybe we should move on to something else but it's like that's just such a sore spot with me is that how, how we could let our children down yeah. by, you know, and, and I could have stepped in. I, I could have, I'm dad. Yeah. I Trump any doctor. Yeah. Um, I could have stepped in and said, now, Seth, don't take Adderall. You know, I, we'll just go out and shoot baskets an extra hour every night in the driveway. Yeah. But I didn't do that. Yeah. I didn't do that. No, so I can't no. blame, I can't blame big farm. Yeah. I can't blame the doctor. Ultimately the buck stops with me in my house. Yeah. And I, I made a conscious decision to uh, not not intervene, and, I, and that I have to take to my grave, and that's probably the only thing I regret out of the whole ordeal we went through. The only thing I regret is not intervening or injecting my opinion when he was. I, out. I agree with that a hundred percent because, like, you're taught to trust the doctors; they're professionals, right? And I'm my dad's a doctor, that, man. I have to trust him. Yeah, <laughs> I'm finding out more and more that. I don't like, it's just, I, I challenge the therapists that with my own kids and things like that. And just like, uh, no, I, and, and they don't have a comeback when I say something, they typically don't have this comeback for it too, because 
you know, I throw a lot of stuff at them and they're very evidence-based, evidence-based. I'm like, can I, I would try to get into children's hospital and like, let me come in there. Let me, let me show you what I do. And they just, they close the door. They won't, they're not oh, yeah. open to that. And it's like, forget it. And somebody told me, go directly to the parents then. And that's what I'm doing. I'm working with kids. I'm, yeah. I'm getting my name out there. I'm just trying to get into the sports field and teach kids how to empower their mindset so that during, you know, you have an athlete in high school and college and they're sitting there, you know, have these pressures from school, pressures from coaches, pressure from parents, pressure from alumni to do well. Right. And look at that girl that was a well-known soccer player that took her own life. Oh, hey, Charlie, there's six division one or let's say there's six NCAA college athletes have taken their yeah. lives this year. Yeah. I think, I think the most, the most in any preceding year was like two or three and we still got half the yeah. year. So this is, this is um, unprecedented uh, issues that we have. And these are good looking four point students, yeah. physically fit, popular and not substance abusers by definition, mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they're not out, you know, they're not out, uh, you know, in, in homeless shelters and rehab facilities. These are, these are kids that you would think have their stuff together, yeah. you know? Um, and then, and then something happened in their lives. And a lot of it comes from society pressures yeah. comes from pressures from parents. I mean, parents are so quick. Parents are so quick to blame the coaches yeah. to blame the phones to blame social media and then the problem every is, time yeah the the i i said a statement the other night in lexington kentucky that really resonated with the crowd i said you know there's no question right now in the history of humanity there's, there's no question that we are are the most connected we've ever been mm -hmm. i mean i i can have 20 intimate conversations yeah. simultaneously yeah. i mean at one time yeah. and then i could then i could talk to someone on the phone and I could, I could, uh, you know, I, I, I have access to people all around the world mm -hmm. that, that my, my dad didn't have just, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yet I would argue we're the most disconnected as individuals yeah. that we've ever been in the history of society, yeah. history of humankind. Yeah. What gives, yeah. what gives with that? You know, I, I'm noticing a lot of people that I work with, we trace the, the trauma back to childhood. You know what I mean? Like we, we say the buck starts yeah. with us. Well, this is generational. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, my mom used to call us ungrateful little shit. And it's funny because I said this mm -hmm. in the presentation, but the thing is the way I processed that information, I felt that I was unloved by my mom. And it wasn't the truth. It was how I interpret that information because of what went out of my childhood. Now, as it went on, it developed codependency issues. It, it wrecked every relationship I went into. Now, once I realized I had the codependency, I was able to get rid of it and, and better my life. And I don't really need anybody in my life, specifically relationship-wise, because I'm focusing on me and I'm focusing on my business. But the thing is, though, we trace it back to childhood. And it's an easy fix, because I've done it so many times, that once you release that and let that go, everything else starts to shoot up for you. But it's like, what, what do you, what do you say for those that didn't have trauma in their childhood? You know, like myself, yeah. I, I never had, I grew up in the leave it the beaver house, yeah. dude. I, I grew up in at Christmas. If I wanted a motorcycle, I, I got yeah. a Honda LXL 80. If I wanted a, a shotgun, I got a shotgun to go pheasant on. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up. I grew up with an enormous amount of love, but I didn't grow up with neglect. Okay. And, um, so I, I, I had no trauma in my life growing up. My, my first brush with trauma probably was when my son died, yeah. age 50. Okay. 
let me ask you this. If I, if, do you mind if I ask a personal question? Is that okay? No, no, that's fine. So that's what this you, is all about, man. Yeah. You said that you were a um, functional alcoholic. You mentioned that. Oh yeah. So yeah. Yep. Why did you drink? My my drinking was not an escape. Okay. It was an exploration. Okay. So so when I when I started drinking in eighth or ninth grade, we would steal beer out of my dad's yeah. refrigerator. We uh, Olympia. And we'd go out into the woods, like two beers, like four, like eight of us. And, and we'd all act like we were drunk. And it was a social okay. thing. Social. I never, I never did drugs in my entire life. Um, to this day, I've only smoked pot twice yeah. and I threw up both times cause I was drunk, but, but beer was my, beer was my thing. Yeah. And, um, I never drank. I, I don't think I ever drank in my entire lifetime cause I was trying to escape from something. Okay. I was happy yeah. in my life. I was I felt I felt I was attractive. I was an athlete. I got decent grades. Um, never really got in trouble. I never was abused by my parents. My brothers and I all got along good. Uh, I had I had girlfriends that didn't work out, but you know who doesn't? Um, so I can't I can't think of my alcoholism being traced to an ex escaping from something. Do you think? Did your um, dad drink? No, my I never saw my mom ever drink, and I never see my dad drunk. Now my dad has like a Coors Light at night. Yeah. Um, but, but I've never seen either of my parents drink. I've never saw my grandparents ever drink. Hmm. Now my wife's side of the family different. Okay. There was a yeah. lot more history of substance abuse on her side of the family. But um, as far as I know, if there was alcoholism in my, in my family, Charlie, it was buried. Yeah. Which, yeah. which very likely could have yeah. been. Um, yeah, no, that's for somebody that hadn't experienced that, you know, if we dug and dug and dug, we could maybe find something where, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? But that's not the place for, yeah, for yeah, something yeah. that doesn't realize. I probably had anxiety. Yeah. I probably had anxiety. I mean, I was, I was, I was always a, a nervous Nelly, I yeah. guess. And then as I matured, I realized that that was my attention deficit. Yeah. And now I, now I lean into it. But so, yeah, maybe I drank to calm my nerves. Yeah. That could have yeah. been, that could have been one. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's all sorts of different factors there, but what I try to do is find the earliest moment of that trauma. Right. So if it's yeah. not childhood, that's fine. It could have been, maybe you were, somebody was raped when they were 16 or 17 right. or, right. you know, something happened, right. There's always a trauma that could be traced back to it. That's causing the emotions that you're having today. Right. So I right. think a lot of it, right. there is some generational trauma to it quite a bit. But the, for those that don't experience that, well, let's figure out what's the A, what's the feeling you're having, right? Where did it start? You talked about the anxiety, you know, maybe it was social anxiety. You know, you just, you just keep digging down and I've learned to yeah. ask really good questions of people to kind of go all the way back to where this started. Once I figure that out, I know exactly what to do. It's the same process for me over and over. It's called chunking down, right? You're just asking this question. Well, where did, what about this? And what about this? For right. example, I, I worked with a, a veteran, found out that his PS, PS, PSTD, what, am I saying that right? Oh, I can I say that. P PT, I, I, do, I do it all the time. PTSD. PTSD. Yep, I do it all the time. So, <laughs> um, it didn't, it wasn't from uh, his military service. I found out, so he, he, back when the games like the Commodore 64s and, and programming first came out, he actually made a video game yeah. and he was so excited on this video game that he wanted to show his dad and his dad came in and he's like, dad, come here, look, I'm playing this game. I made all of this. And the dad's like, oh, okay. And then walked out and immediately from oh, that wow. moment on his feeling that he had was a, a internal chatter 
and a muddy feeling. That's how he described it. So guess what? I traced the trauma back from there. I'm like, okay, so tell me about your dad. Why do you think he did that? And we traced it back that when his dad was four years old, he was walking down some steps with his mother. His mother slipped, hit her head on the back of the cement steps and died in his arms. Oh, man. So I did the procedure for him, what I do for PTSD, which actually there's a RAD study that's out there that it was 97% effective in veterans. And nobody left Mm. the study. It's that powerful and only took an average of three sessions to get somebody into a remissive state. So I met with them. We did this for about 10 minutes again. Uh, immediately the muddy feeling was gone. The internal chatter was gone. It's never came back because I stayed in contact with them over three years and it's never come back. And then he flew, he went down to his dad in Arizona and had the best conversation and just everything healed up from there. You know, when you could find that point of just healing yourself, the communication and the doors and the floodgates just open for like better communication with maybe people that you didn't have that with before. Do you, do you meditate or do every you suggest day meditation? I do. So in the morning I do my meditation. I get up every morning at like four 30. I go work out, come home. I do my meditation. And then later in the day, I do something that's called a workshop, right? To create like kind of like affirmations or the, the law of attraction. Yeah. What I do is I don't meditate, but I just close my eyes. And I kind of figure out and take notes of like where I want to be, what do I want to bring into my life? You know, I want to build this program. What does it look like? So I kind of spend my time like envisioning like where my business and where I'm going to go personally in any type of situation that you're dealing with. You just spend 10 minutes a day kind of working on yourself and figuring out where do you want to go? Did you see the study that just got released um, with uh, meditation in schools for adolescents? No, but I think it'd be wonderful. Well, it, me too, but the, the, the results of the study were not favorable. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of, um, I've seen it on Twitter. I've seen it on uh, mostly social media at this point where some very renowned uh, psychologists have like um, tagged it and then reshared it. But it's pretty damning that mindfulness training in kids in schools actually had the opposite effect. Were they doing um, it at and, home and this, too? Like that's the thing. No, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just know this was a very careful long-term study. They held back all the data until it was completed. I think they did this it could have been a decade. I know it was a very, very yeah. good study and it was run by a, a reputable organization or a facility. Um, but it, I saw it from somebody I follow on Twitter that is, you know, one of the, most groundbreaking uh, psychologists uh, out there. Um, I won't say his name, but he's he's got utmost respect. Yeah. And he actually he actually said, you know, is this damning for you know meditation industry? And he shared it, but he wasn't saying yeah, yes or no. Yeah. He was asking the question. But I haven't looked at the study. But I didn't know if you saw it because I got no, a I lot of friends. I have a lot of friends like you like me that are big meditators and they believe that that's like how you, how you save kids today. But this study actually says it, 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 it does the opposite. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the study kind of an, with an open mind. Yeah. No, for yeah. me, I've noticed I'm calmer. I don't get upset with situations as me much. Too. 
So for me, it yeah. works. Maybe it doesn't work as well as kids because you remember, well, I think I talked about, I possibly talked about this at the, uh, when we talked, the first seven years of life, you're kind of in your conscious mind, your creative yeah. mind, learning. Maybe somebody right. with ADHD is still kind of, you know, going forward with their mindset and just not at a point. And I'm curious to know if this is grade school based or high school based or whatever that may be. But I'm, I'm assuming the older you get, like I said, I'm assuming the older you get, if you're into anything, you're going to put your all into it, right? Your effort into right. it. So right. I'd be curious to know how many really just cared about it or, or wanted to do that versus, yeah. like you said, you have a study, you're kind of forced into it. But for me, like, this is something that I'm passionate about and, and it works yeah. for me. But if you're not passionate about it and you don't want right. to do it, like if I worked with somebody that's a student and their parents made me work with them, well, I'd have a lot of uphill battle to do to get them into a state where they'd want to work with me, building rapport and trusting me versus a kid that's like, I, I want some help. Like, I want to talk to this guy. You know, they're yeah, more. Yeah, I, I think. Go ahead. Uh, they're just more vested in it if you want to do it versus you don't. Yeah, I think with meditation specifically yeah. for me, the people that I know that have stopped or, you know, didn't like it, that they had a mindset that something was going to happen. Yeah. Like, like something was going to like, like, like you said, something was going to work for them. And I think, I think that, that prejudice in yeah. a way can can actually yeah. hurt people who are starting meditation because the the reality of meditation nothing happens i mean yeah. you you're you're just you're just aware of thoughts and the thoughts themselves is probably the event that people think well if i can get my thoughts to be better i'll become happier and it's like now nah, that's meditation isn't uh and you know yeah. this but the people that haven't never meditated or maybe the teachers at these schools that maybe were trying to teach mindfulness yeah. that they weren't really doing it correctly because there really isn't anything to really teach. Yeah. Um, well, you've got to start but, with the teachers first, right? You've got to reprogram right. their mindset first because when students yeah. see how you interact with them and you're changing as a student is changing and seeing the teacher over years, it's like, oh, wow. Like, I bet you'd see a difference in these kids. Right. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's, again, it, it's a tool, um, you know, like, like what you're doing, you, you try to arm your clients with, you know, uh, extra tools or extra arrows yeah. in the quiver, as I like yeah. to say, and at the end of, at the end of the day, you know, we're just trying to improve quality of life and well-being for yeah. people. Um, we're not trying to, you know, expel demons no. from them or try to try to get them where they're, they're never down or they're never sad um you know all these illusions that i think are presented by experts in this mental health space that you know we can fix your problems and there we are back again what problem yeah you know a hyper 15 year old kid doesn't have a problem if you think about this for a second if you take somebody who has attention deficit and you want to just say it's a it's a disorder yeah and it, it's a dis, it's a disorder because of what well because they don't conform to what a normal kid yeah. There's would that be, word right? normal. So, so, so you have a normal 15-year-old yeah. boy, and we can laugh right there yeah. because that doesn't no. exist. No. And so we're comparing a attention deficit kid to a normal 15-year-old kid. Well, that normal kid doesn't yeah. exist. So we're comparing to a bar yeah. that doesn't exist. And I think that's the problem with all these labels is, is what are we Label. comparing to? What's your Labels, baseline? Yeah. What's your baseline? What's your yeah. baseline? A normal seventeen-year-old or no? And the problem is, is 
There isn't no. one. And, and I think that that's why the, the labels themselves have to be, um, have to be, uh, yeah. reworked and, and rethought through, but Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to have to okay. cut you a little short yeah. today. Um, I got another call, another podcast starting, but I'm making up for lost yeah, ground with the tour that we were on. Um, but, uh, I'd like to have you end a little bit about how people can reach you kind of what's next on the plate for you. Uh, and, and what can we expect from what you do for, uh, helping people? Yeah. So I'm, I'm headed down to Tampa Bay in about seven weeks. I'm relocating down there. I'm making a a big push to get in with, uh, athletes down in that area. Uh, so I'm, uh, working with athletes just kind of on the mindset side to bring them to a peak state so they can stay in that instantly. That's kind of the area where I'm at right now. Uh, you can go to my website and get a hold of me too. It's at Charlie Ray the Healer. So www.charlieraythehealer.com. I got my information out there. Go ahead. I mean, I'm always open to just talking and just seeing what the mm. problem is and guide somebody in the right direction that it's out there. But I'm creating a lot of programs. I actually am almost on the last part of writing my first series in a children's book. It's based after mm, my youngest great. son, Grayson goes to school. We have anxiety about making new friends and, and it teaches kind of parents how do we communicate to our child, but give that child kind of the empowerment to start making their decisions right. and, and figuring stuff out. So they have more tools for when they go into situations, not being told what to do, but being part of the process. To give them autonomy, yeah. right? At the yeah. end of the day. Uh, well, listen, man, I, I've enjoyed uh, meeting you and actually personally yeah. meeting you in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm sure our paths will always stay connected. Um, and again, our stories are, are similar, but different. Um, and I'm honored to have you on the Thank show you. and, um, I really wish you well and, um, keep living undeterred. Absolutely. All right. 